0: Well, you might remember from earlier this year, year, rather, I shared with you a story about how I had a goanna randomly walk into my office. Do you remember that? I think I've got a picture of it here. A um, little bit hard to see. It actually I think it's almost blended into the carpet there, but um, I actually met a young guy recently named Hudson at our 6 p.m. service. Um, he's a year 11 guy. And he recently went on his Duke of Ed camp. And what did he do? He caught a goanna. All right? Um... He's, uh, this is actually another Goanna he caught. This was, um, on his farm. He's got a farm somewhere. Um, but he's like a modern day Steve Irwin. He, he almost looks a bit like him as well. And I was thinking a pity I didn't know Hudson earlier this year. Otherwise I could have given him a call and then, um, got him in to, to rescue me from this Goanna. Now, why do I share this with you? Well, it's not primarily so that you will know someone in the parish, in the church here, that if you happen to have a goanna come into your midst, you know who to call, Hudson. Um, not because of that, but rather, I think it's an illustration that when things go awry, when, when things go wrong, when we're kind of a little bit out of our depths, uh, we want to look to someone else who's a little bit more in control, someone who can lead in that situation and help you out. And I say that it's not just in our own lives we look for those people. Like when we're kids, we look to our parents. But even as adults, we look to others. It's not just in our own lives, but in our communities as well, we look for leadership. Uh, We do so in our country as well, in our world. We're looking for leadership. It seems where every term we're crying out for someone to deal with the problems and challenges that exist in our lives, in our world. Uh, Sri Lanka, um, we'll probably pray for Sri Lanka um, later today, of course is in the midst of an uprising. As people seek to oust corrupt leadership and instate just and wise government who will help them in their economic problems that they face. In the UK, of course, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, was forced to resign due to a couple of um, misdemeanours or scandals in recent times. They're looking for a leader, someone who will lead with integrity and in truth. And when we have a new leader or we have a new leader that comes into a situation, particularly politically, sometimes we're hopeful and maybe rightly so. Sometimes a new leader will bring change, good change. And sometimes they do, but any change, I want to say, is only temporary. And as we'll see today, even the greatest of leaders, we've heard about the greatest of leaders over the last few weeks in King David, he can fail. The greatest of leaders will fail. And he does in the most catastrophic way. So as we look at this catastrophic fall of David, we think, what does it mean for us today? I want you to join me as we pray to begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that this morning in particular you might teach us that you are the God who still keeps your promises even in spite, even, even through the evil actions of people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin. Point number one, the catastrophe. Uh, from verse one, we read these were verses. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. If we're reading to Samuel 11 for the first time, we've just read those words. We'd be expecting to hear, as the reader, more of this military campaign in the Ammonites, of the Ammonites rather. But verse one, David, we see, remained in Jerusalem. And it's to Jerusalem that our attention now turns. Have a look from verse two. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. Uh, The contrast to the scene of war here is really stark, isn't it? Joab and the Israelite army are engaged in battle. It's life or death for them. But here for David, the scene is so different. It's evening. The sun has set. David's been resting in his bed. And as dusk comes, he arises from his bed and he strolls out onto the roof of the palace to enjoy the cool evening air. What's the scene that's being set here? It's a scene of peace, rest, calm. But more than that, safety. Safety from the ravages of war. So it seemed. Uh, For David, as one writer put it, was not safe from himself. The walls of Jerusalem were no protection for his own deep flaws. Again, we read verse 2, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, there's no hint here that this woman is acting provocatively. Uh, She's rather likely bathing inside, but the elevation of David's palace as he looks down from the roof makes her visible. Then we read verse 3, And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent Can you see David using his position of power and authority not to serve but to be served? Rather than turning his attention away, he turns his attention towards this woman. And when the news came that she was Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, his conscience should have been pricked. You see, Eliam was the son of Athithophel, one of David's mighty men, who was out fighting at this very moment for David. More than that, Bathsheba is described as the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. She is married. Uriah was a resident alien and like his father-in-law, one of David's mighty men who was fighting for him. I was reading part of Psalm 119 during the week. And verse 11 goes like this. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? Why have I hidden your word in my heart? So that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the word was not in David's heart. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14. And I think it's a good lesson for us and a good question for us to ask Is the word in our heart? Not just what we hear it on Sunday, but is it in our heart? Do you memorize God's word so that it sits in your heart? You see, David had all the warning he needed not to go any further, but he didn't. David took, verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Did you see those two words again? Again, David sent. And this time David took. Many years earlier, the prophet Samuel had warned God's people about the king who would be like all the other nations. And what would he do? He would take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters, he will take the best of your fields, he will take a tenth of your grain, he will take a tenth of your flocks, he will take. And David, who for so long had refused to take power, you might remember, from the anointed soul, he said, no, I will not do that. Here, David takes I want to ask, as we've reflected on this event in David's life, does it shock you? Does it shock you? Or maybe you have listened to this story and thought, is it really that bad? What harm was done? And particularly today, if this event happened, with modern contraception, the resultant risk of falling pregnant is almost zero. If no one is the wiser, what harm is done? People have sex outside marriage all the time. With the proviso that Bathsheba consented, because consent is what our world says is the most important, consent, that as long as you consent, and that David you know, hadn't coerced her, what's the harm that was done? I hope you're not thinking that, but I think our modern world often thinks like this, but I think they're grossly deceived. You see, what we espouse today as sexual freedom is actually deeply enslaving. For sex becomes not a gift that you give in the safety and the protection of a lifelong bond between a man and a woman for the gift of children. Rather, sex becomes this self-centred lust that is all about my taking, my taking of pleasure and my quest for personal gratification. Because after all, that's what life is about, isn't it? My pleasure. Well, David has forgotten God, he's forgotten his word, and Bathsheba is pregnant. How will David respond? Well, he responds, point number two, with the cover up. We read from verse 6 So David sent this word to Job send me Uriah the Hittite, and Job sent him to David. Did you see it once more? David sent. Once more, David seems completely in control here. He's the king after all. and we're, But actually, we're hopeful. If we'd read this for the very first time and we knew the life of David, right, at this point, we'd maybe be hopeful knowing David's character. Maybe he will come to his senses. Uh, he's had this catastrophic fall, but maybe now, as he calls Uriah, Uriah back from the battle lines, he's going to lay all his cards on the table He's going to confess his sin to the one whom he betrayed and ask for forgiveness and try to make amends. But we know the story, he doesn't do that, does he? After Commander Job sends Uriah to David, we soon see David's deceptive intent. His plan is for Uriah to sleep with his wife so as to cover up the recent pregnancy. But unfortunately for David, Uriah lay... Not with his wife, but verse 9, at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants. On David's inquiry as to Uriah's unusual behavior, and it is unusual, Uriah responds, verse 11, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commanded job and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go out to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. A sharp contrast is drawn here between the integrity and faithfulness of Uriah and the flagrant indulgence of his king. What will David do? Will Uriah's piety, in contrast with David's own deception, convict David of his sin and cause him to come clean? I had a moment last week where my daughter, Immy, sheepishly came to me and she said, Daddy, I've got something to show you. And she took me to her room, her bedroom, and she pulled back her doona and there on her doona was a hand towel that was covered with what looked like red play I don't know what it was, but it was all smeared with red. what I thought was red Play-Doh. And she explained what happened, and I, I just said to her, I forgive you. It's okay, I forgive you. And then I said to her, I said, whenever you do something wrong in me, whatever it is, however bad or however trivial, however little it is, I just want you to tell me. Just tell me. Daddy, Daddy will not be angry. I won't be angry. Just tell me. And the reason I did that is because confession, in confession rather, there is freedom. There's freedom from the darkness and the guilt that sin creates. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer once wrote wrote these words, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will the power of sin over him be. Sin wants to remain unknown. It, It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. In confession, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. But unfortunately, David is still a long way from confessing. He devises another similar but what he believes, a better plan. Have a look from verse 12 We read, Then David said to Uriah, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David says to Uriah, verse 12, Remain in Jerusalem. We've heard those words before, haven't we? It's an eerie echo of verse 1, where David remained in Jerusalem. But of course, Uriah's integrity of conduct while he remained in Jerusalem is a stark contrast to that of David's. Have a look, verse thirteen. At David's intention he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his father, the master's servants. He did not go home. As one writer put it, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. So David's plan B fails. And again, we're left wondering what will David do at this point? Well, what comes next if we've read up to this point in the life of David is as unexpected as it is horrific. Uh, in verse 14 to 15, a letter is sent from David to his commander, Job. In it is the instructions of the murder of the innocent Uriah. Once again David uses his royal authority but not for good. Here is the king who on one, more than one occasion on his life in his life rather refused to shed the blood of the guilty soul. Remember that he had two times he had an opportunity to kill him and he didn't. Now he finds himself wielding his power and authority to execute an innocent man in order to cover up his own sin. And it works. In verse 18, we read of the news of Uriah's death reaching David's ears. But David's response is sobering there's no grief, there's no mourning, it's only relief. But in doing so, he shows us the blindness of his own evil actions. David responds to the messenger who bears the news of Uriah's death with these words, verse 25, Say to Job, don't let this upset you. Or literally, it says, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. See, David's heart had lied to him blinding him from his own evil actions. His conscience is seared. He cannot see his evil. In the words of Romans 1, he has suppressed the truth by his wickedness. Well, The scene finishes with Bathsheba in mourning. But nothing of David. David does not mourn. And then, for the first time in the whole chapter, the Lord is mentioned. We read, But the thing that David done was literally evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's what it literally says evil in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't evil in David's eyes but there was another who, had saw, who saw the unfolding events of 2 Samuel 11 and it was evil in his eyes. I want to ask you, do you believe that God is watching? That he sees everything? That he knows every thought of our mind? That is a sobering thought. He sees everything. I want to ask you, does that scare you? Does that make you afraid? I want to say in one sense it should invoke a deep fear. But not a fear that turns us away from God, but a fear that turns us towards him. Charles Spurgeon often spoke about the fear of God and he said there is a right fear and a wrong fear of God. That God sees everything ought to make us fear falling on our face before the Lord but falling, Spurgeon said, leaning towards him. And what he meant by that is that the God who is righteous and holy and just, who will punish all sin because he sees all things and he is completely righteous and holy, that God we ought to fear, but he's also the same God who is, if you're a Christian, your heavenly father who loves you and the one who loves you so much that he sent his only son to bear all that guilt And so he will embrace you with his forgiveness and his grace. We fear falling towards him. Uh, We won't look at it today, but next week we'll see the extraordinary kindness and mercy of God, who through Nathan will say to David these words, the Lord has taken away your sin. But here in chapter 11, we see the extent, not primarily of human sinfulness in general, but David's sinfulness. Here is God's chosen king, the, God, the king after God's own heart, now an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. But somehow, remarkably, through God's chosen king, God will keep his promise. We heard that extraordinary promise last week when Dougal spoke from 2 Samuel 7. These words, your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever. We heard Philip read for us the first page of the New Testament. We're reminded again of God's faithfulness to this promise, in spite, no, actually, through David's evil. Recording in two Samuel um, that we read today, if we read these words: Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David. There's the promise being fulfilled, isn't it? the son of David, and among the many skeletons in the closet, the ancestry of Jesus includes, verse 6, the wife of Uriah, the Uriah whom David killed. You see, God will achieve his purposes. He will keep his promises because he is faithful. And we've seen that this morning. We, who, do we, who do we hope in? What do we hope in? when the greatest of our leaders fail. Well, our hope is not in human leaders. We, Israel couldn't hope in the greatest leader of all history. We can't hope in any human leader. In the end, they will fail, for they are like you and I. Now, our hope is in God's leader, in God's king, That he will return and he will bring his rule as he teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven.